This is the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast with Wayne Scott and Gary Taylor. On this episode, live at the Aston Martin Heritage Festival, and we go behind the scenes at the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. Discover more about the story of Aston Martin. AMHT.org.uk Hello and welcome to the very first Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. I'm Wayne Scott and... I'm Gary Taylor. And you're very welcome to our fascinating journey. It's going to be an audio journey through over a century of Aston Martin heritage. And we'll be telling the story of those cars through the eyes of the people that worked with them, worked around them, and also some of the places that made this brand that is so important to the UK what it is today. And along the way, we'll have some fantastic insights from the Aston Martin Heritage Trust as well. And Gary, Aston Martin is a brand that is not just important as a car brand, but it's integral to the history of the UK, isn't it? I think you're right there. Wayne, Aston Martin has been certainly iconic to the UK and it reaches far and wide you know it is worldwide over the years with the James Bond input and now we have Formula One I think their their range is certainly going to expand uh, yes absolutely I Aston Martin is certainly an iconic brand and we both have a huge passion for British motoring and in particular you absolutely love Aston Martin I know so what got you into it in the first place well Wayne I think I'm pretty confident saying it wasn't James Bond, surprisingly. Uh, I think I was about nine years old and I was in uh, Richmond with my mum and we was by the lake, or the river I should say, and this beautiful white DB6 Volante turned up. And I just turned around and equally there was a very attractive lady that got out. Now, I don't think it was the lady that caught my eye as I was only nine years old, but certainly the car did. And I thought, wow, that, that is... That is beautiful. White, chrome wire wheels, Aston Martin. I don't ever recall seeing something like that. Anyway, I think later on I, I, I bought the the Observer Book of Automobiles. Yeah, they were the loads little tiny pocket books with hardbacks, weren't they? Yeah, they're marvellous little things, all, all in black and white then. And I bought one and I flicked through it and I went, I went straight to Aston Martin. And again, there was a DB6 there, but I saw, and I believe it was just a recently launched DBS. It was a six-cylinder version. And again, that was white, or it was very light silver. And again, with chrome wire wheels. And I thought, oh, this, these cars are just beautiful. And I think at that point, Wayne, I think I was just, I was just sucked in. So it, it was that point. Um, I don't think James Bond registered. I may have had the corgi toy, but I think it was that moment for me. Oh, for me, it was all about motorsport. I've been obsessed with the Le Mans 24-hour race all my life, really, since seeing my dad tootle off to go and watch Jaguar win with the silk-cut TWR cars in the late 80s. Oh, yeah. And, of course, watching the Steve McQueen film one Sunday afternoon when it was put out on TV as, as a young child. I just got obsessed with Le Mans. And you can't read the story of Le Mans without getting into Aston Martin, those fantastic DBR1s of the late 50s. And the names that drove for Aston Martin in those early days, Roy Salvadori, Carol Shelby even, Tony Brooks, Reg Parnell, all real luminaries of the golden era of British motorsport then. Of course, Sterling Moss as well. And by 1959, they were world champions and had won Le Mans as well. And for me, as let's face it an underdog company as they were then there was something really inspirational in all of that i think you're right i mean is it, as you say there was a great roll call of names there and although the le mans victory was many years ago uh, i think it still resonates and i think part of the reason why it resonates and I also won the world championship that year is uh they were the underdog and I think Aston Martin for many years has been been the underdog in, in racing. And it's and I think we can see now through Aston Martin racing, through the ProDrive operation, um, they're no longer the underdog and they're, and they're still punching away against the, uh, against the established uh, marks. All of that was revived for me very recently, actually, when I was at Le Mans watching the Aston Martin GT team taking on the Corvettes. It was a battle that ran for a number of years in the mid-noughties, and there was that fantastic moment where they took the lead on the very last lap, and it really is harking back to those glory days of motorsport, but it's happening here and now in front of us, and I think the way that Aston Martin, through ProDrive, 
brought that mark back to racing and of course now in formula one as well has really rekindled all those motorsport spirits in aston martin once again and i think everyone has their era don't they it's like all classic cars all historic vehicles if you're into the world of cars you have your era that you you're sort of most fond of mine is that early noughties era the sort of post db7 era of aston martin i think when the db9 arrived that style arrived and the kind of Ian Callum design legacy, I guess, from the DB7 was was developed throughout uh, the, the noughties to 2010. And that's, that's when I think Aston Martin really became exciting once again, as they had been in previous generations. What was your era, Gary? I think it would be DB7, despite my infatuation with the DB6 Volante all those years earlier. I think DB7 was uh, a special time for me. I think it was uh, certainly a statement of intent by the company, you know, looking to a, a new direction. And it was such a beautiful car, uh, penned by Ian Callum. And it was from that point for me where I took a great interest in Aston Martin. Uh, I was fortunate enough to earn a DB7 at that time. And I think it's from that point that it all just fell into place. I just loved the car. I loved the integrity of the car. And I think from that point, that's my era. I think integrity is a brilliant word. I also think accessibility is as well, because it is that. It is accessible exotica is how I refer to Aston Martin, because although it's up there with the likes of Ferrari, Lamborghini and all those exotic supercars that we all aspire to own one day, in actual fact, it's British, and not that long ago, you could drive through Newport Pagnell have to stop on the road to let them carry the body shells past you and wheel them across the road. It was something that was tangible. You could see it around you. It was British. And I kind of have a feeling like the UK feel they have a stake in Aston Martin, even if they don't own one or if they still aspire to owning one. It is accessible to people, isn't it? I recently read an interview uh, in a magazine with uh, Lawrence Stroll, the new owner of Aston Martin. And he he commented he was amazed and overwhelmed by the, the love and affection that people have for Aston Martin. And and here is a, you know, should we say a hard-nosed businessman and he knows what he wants to do, but he did seem very genuine, but wow, this this is something that I, I've got to look after this. We have got to look after this. So it is very accessible. I say accessible. I mean, it is the new cars are reassuringly expensive. But I think through the fan base, whether it's through an aspiration one day or a poster on the wall, I'm going to own one of these cars. Through the social media, through brochures, through all sorts of manners, I think there is a, a general uh, attachment and affection for these cars that is not so far away. There are, say, shall we say, like Bugatti and some other Italian marks where you just feel a little bit distant. Mm. I think we've got an ownership of Aston Martin. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it is not just about myself and Gary talking about how much we love Aston Martin, although, as you can probably tell, we can do that for hours on end. Yes, we Instead, can. we'd like to feature your stories on this podcast. This podcast is very much as much yours as it is ours. So please do get in touch. You can do that really easily via the website Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Dot com. Click on the contact button there and you can leave us the contact details for you and a little bit of a preview of your story. Or even better, you can leave us a voicemail that we can then feature on this show. And the best of the stories we'll pick up and get back in touch with you to interview you on this podcast. And that's what it's all about, isn't it, Gary? It's about not just the cars, but capturing the stories of the people as well. I mean, it's not just us two people banging on about cars and it's not just about cars. It's about the story. It's about the heritage. It's about the experience. And we don't just want this podcast to be us two. We want to hear from you. We want to hear about how you've got involved with Aston Martin, about your ownership experience with Aston Martin, who you've met, who you've been with, uh, where you've been. We want to hear your stories because this podcast with the Heritage Trust will be part of the archive. We have sadly lost many people over the years um, and sadly they've taken their stories with them so we would love this podcast to be a permanent record of of your experience your heritage your love for aston martin so it will be great to hear from you 
Absolutely. And personally speaking, a lot of people in my life have departed over the last year, 18 months. It's been tough times for everyone. And we're just at that point where some of those amazing people with their amazing stories are being lost. And if we don't record them, capture them, and most importantly, share them, those stories will be lost forever. And the thing about cars is it's not just about products that move us from A to B. There is a narrative that goes along with cars that is a narrative of our own social development as a nation, as a culture, as people as well. So that's why it's so important that we get your stories as well here on the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast, which is, by the way, brought to you by the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. Now, this is a real place, ladies and gentlemen. And if you haven't (laughs) been, where have you been? You've got to come down and see us. Uh, It's in Wallingford. It's a museum, isn't it, Gary? It's a lovely museum, actually in Drayton St. Leonard, which is near Wallingford, Oxfordshire. And the trust has been there since uh, 1998. And interestingly enough, Wayne, the, the, the trust went to the Silverson Classic earlier this year. We had a stand there. We took the, uh, we took the Ulster and we was there to say, hey, guys, here we are. And, Wayne, it was surprising still the number of people that uh, didn't know that we existed. There was a museum, what we did. So it was important for us to be out there to promote that message. So we do have a museum. Do come and visit us. It's in a a barn from, I think, 600 years ago, and it's a magnificent uh, building, a magnificent wooden structure. Sadly, it becoming a bit small for our purposes these days, but we are looking to to expand into others. And we have a great collection of cars. We have a a great collection of artefacts and heritage items. So please do come and see us you'll be more than welcome. And they are a brilliantly friendly bunch down at the Aston Martin Heritage Trust, so definitely do pop down and see them. And we thought we'd peel back the covers on the Aston Martin Heritage Trust to give you an insight into what happens behind the scenes and to start our series of what we're calling Trust Talks. Is Gary going to meet the very lady who has navigated the trust through some very difficult times over the last 18 months? Donna Thompson. Trust Talk. We take you behind the scenes at the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. Today, I'm with Donna Thompson, who is the general manager and runs the operations at the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. Donna, your day-to-day life at the museum, it must be full of glamour and joy. Normally it is. This this past year has been a bit different for most of us, being that with COVID-19 and the museum being closed... Um, It definitely has made our our thinking a bit outside the box. Well, it was the first time we implemented time ticketing system, which has been um, an absolute godsend for us. So we um, require people to book online, whether they're free for club members. That gives us the opportunity to know exactly how many people we have coming, when they're coming. Um, but we are still happy to, to answer questions. And But we, we do let the museum floor to the visitors. Now, I hear that you have some quite glamorous visitors do turn up. TV crew, film crew. Would you just like to spill the beans on some names of the people you have rubbed shoulders with? <laughs> um, probably the most famous Uh-oh, that I've go. that I've rubbed shoulders with, um, Mr. Paul Hollywood, everyone's favorite baker. He was doing a um, documentary on his getting his driver's license, his racing license. I, I believe that's right. I think it was on BBC Two, so it was a, an Aston Martin feature, wasn't it? And he was he was on about getting and uh, getting his license, and he wanted to find out about the history of Aston Martin. That that's exactly it. And so he came here, and I showed him around the museum, and all of the ladies um, in the, were all excited, and because I got to be the one that showed him around, I got to meet Phil Glenister, who um, from Life on Mars. He was right. here as part of a. Um, restoration project so he was the spokesman for a restoration project away from the glamour of of rubbing shoulders with superstars uh, Donna deals with day-to-day requests from from the public from members from uh, friends of the trust what what sort of uh, requests these are these are not visitors but these are like uh, perhaps emails and phone calls 
what's the normal request you get that the, the museum tends to get? Um, the most popular thing that we get is, what can you tell me about my car? And most of the time, we can tell them something, um, but it requires looking into the build sheets, the old club records. Um, we look through the photograph collection to see if we have any um, pictures of their cars that may have appeared at events or in publications. Um, so, so you're able to do that. So if someone has bought a, a, a DB7 or a Vantage, and naturally they're going to be very excited. They're going to want to know the history of that. So if they ring you, perhaps with the chassis number or the registration number, because registration numbers do change over the years, so it can make difficult to trace these things, you can find quite a bit of information. Probably takes some digging, though, doesn't it? It does take some digging, and um, because the core of our records are based on... Aston Martin Owners Club, if a car was not owned by a club member in its lifetime, then the information that we may have may be less than, than what the, the new owner is hoping for, but we do um, try our best to, to dig as much as we can. I hear that the, the trust can provide something called a, a V765 or something uh, like a, called a heritage certificate. What, what's the difference between those two things? So the V765, that is a DVLA required form to get an original period registration number back or the original registration back to a car. Um, the heritage certificate is a certificate that we produce that gives all of the information as the car was when it left the factory. So it doesn't include any modifications that may have been made after the fact. I will say, I mean, I've got a heritage certificate for, for uh, my car, and it's a very nice certificate. I mean, it, is, it makes a lovely gift for someone. So if uh, uh, your, your partner in crime uh, and is coming up for a birthday or a Christmas present, I think a, a heritage certificate uh, from the trust, nicely framed, would be an ideal present. Definitely, definitely agree. Obviously, uh, dealers tend to want to know the history of the car a bit more, so I believe the trust gets a lot of inquiries from dealers. Um, the you know, Dealers want to be able to add a bit of provenance to, to the cars that they're selling, so we provide heritage certificates and build sheets um, to help with that. Sometimes we're able to add period photographs, um, anything that, that helps them sell the car. You say photographs. I, I've, I've been aware that the, the, the Aston Martin Heritage Trust is the, is the font of all knowledge for some book and publication uh, magazines, if you like, for, for photographs. And we've always been approached by such publishers for, for material. Is that right? That, yeah, we um, get lots of requests from journalists and authors for... Um, the ever elusive photograph that hasn't been seen before. Um, sometimes we're able to do that. Lots of times it's it's a very popular photograph that, that everybody wants. I understood that, uh, I think the recent publication of from that Ben Collins book on Aston Martin, I think he, he was here a few times sourcing some material. Oh, I've met the Stig as well. Yeah, forgot about him. Donna has <laughs> met the Stig also request uh, from from the trust is from Aston Martin themselves and as we all know they've returned to Formula One racing and they approached you for what Donna? Right so so months and months ago before an, any announcements were made um, they were asking for any images that we may have or moving f video that we may have on the DBR fours and any of the Grand Prix cars um, from back in the day, knowing that they were going to need them in this upcoming push for the new Aston Martin Formula One team. So they spoke to you, they approached you, and you knew about this before there was any announcement of a Formula One team? Yes, we did. Donna, it's been, it's been great speaking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You're listening to the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Discover more about the story of Aston Martin, the cars, the people, the history, with the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. You're always welcome to visit us at our museum in Oxfordshire, so find out more via amht.org.uk.
Well, as we heard from Donna there, Gary, it's been definitely weird times for the Trust over the past 18 months, hasn't it? It certainly has. What has worked remarkably well, and we are continuing this at the moment, is the uh, the ticketing system. Uh, we introduced it between various COVID periods, so we could manage the number of people that came in, and we knew who was coming in, so we could trace these people. And it worked remarkably well. People engaged with it, they, they signed up, they bought their tickets online, and we knew when they were coming in etc and we could manage the crowds and yes it can get crowded at a museum you can have suddenly uh, uh, not so much a coach load but you can have a number of people suddenly turning up uh, at random so that has worked very very well so despite the challenges we uh, managed to keep the museum visitors coming into the place when we were allowed to and during that time Donna and the rest of the team at that time were managed to keep the the archive collection going the cataloging and etc etc was carrying on and it gave us time to uh, brush up the museum uh, get rid of some of the uh, some of the cobwebs from this uh, very ancient barn that's brilliant and of course the other way you've engaged with people is the, through the membership as well and people can actually support the Aston Martin Heritage Trust even when they're not visiting can't they people keep referring to us as a club we're, we're not a club we, we are a, uh, a trust and Membership is not perhaps the, the correct word, but they what we are introducing is something called a friends supporters scheme. So people become friends of the trust and they can uh, support us in uh, in a number of ways. They can join us. It's on the website, amht.org.uk. And they can support us by, uh, by various packages. And with that, you'll get a copy of our annual journal called Aston, which is absolutely splendid. You'll get a, an e-newsletter on a regular basis called Driving Seat, which keeps you up to date with all sorts of nonsense and goings-on at the Trust. You get a lapel uh, badge and sticker and so much more. And also we get free entry to the museum. Uh, so this is an annual thing. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can also donate to the Trust as well. And there's a, a link on the page. So there are a number of ways you can support the Trust. We are reliant uh, on uh, on income from, uh, from friends, as well as our good friends at the Aston Martin Owners Club. And without uh, the Owners Club and our external funding, there will not be any uh, Aston Martin heritage to record. Well, every episode, we'll be bringing that Aston Martin heritage to you by peeling back the covers, opening the doors to the Aston Martin Heritage Trust and having a good old rummage round in the archives, basically. It started there with Donna. Next week, though, we're going to be looking at a very, very important collection to the Trust, aren't we, Gary? And you had a little poke round the Roger Stowers collection. That's going to be an interesting listen. That's going to be amazing. Uh, really looking forward to this one coming out. Roger Stowers, I think if anyone knows Aston Martin history, Roger Stowers and Aston Martin were just just joined at the hip. He was such a great ambassador and enthusiast and he worked at Aston Martin themselves. He was always there. I think I remember him saying he was made redundant a number of times and every time he was made redundant, he was still there. Then, you know, Aston Martin found their feet again and he was re-employed. He, he was a tremendous character and he always had his camera with him. And the Trust managed to acquire his complete collection of items. And we are currently recording that, archiving it and piecing it together for everyone to enjoy. And this will be on the website very soon. So please look forward to the next episode. I think you will find it very engaging. Forthcoming then in episode two of the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. But uh, over the summer, Gary, you were let out, like all of us, at last, to go and enjoy car shows once again. And got to be the highlight of the year for us Aston Martin fans. It was, of course, the Aston Martin Heritage Festival that took place at Dallas Polo Club. No, not in America. In fact, Southern Warwickshire, just down the road, in fact, from Gaydon, where Aston Martin are now. And it was a an event that was sort of piloted this year, wasn't it, Gary? So talk us through the planning stages. What was the highlight of the build-up for you? The the festival was thought of uh, back in 2020, long before COVID raised its uh, ugly head. And we was wondering whether it was actually going to go ahead, and it did happen towards the end of June. 
just after I believe the restrictions were being lifted and we weren't sure whether it was going to go ahead or not. It was primarily a fundraising exercise. It was to champion uh, the 100 years of our of the oldest surviving Aston Martin, which is A3, which is able to be seen at the museum. And we wanted to let the car out and we wanted people to see and enjoy it. And so we decided to do the Aston Martin Heritage Festival. The highlight for me, Wayne, was the sheer scale of the event. I was there a day or two before the event opened and we we saw the fields and think we're, we're just never going to fill this up. It was vast, Wayne. It was huge. And on the day, cars were coming in. Now, I'm going to be honest, we, we had a, a number of people signed up. It was ticketing only. But it was just about one or two days beforehand, Wayne, where the ticket sales just flew through the roof. And it was going to be a great success. We nearly had 700 cars there. And the highlight for me, which I will get to, was the marshals did a great job. They put the cars in era. Rather than just random parking in these fields, they were just in era. So you had the pre-war, you had Feltham, you had Gaydon, you had Newport Pagnall, you had DB7s, you had the new era, and you had the second century. So for me, just seeing the scale of it, and you can go from one part of the field to the next and follow the history of Aston Martin uh, through those fields. It was amazing just by seeing those cars placed in their era. I think it was just a simple touch. Not an easy one but uh, to achieve, but the marshals and the AMHT team did a great job to make that happen, and I think it was well supported. And of course, it was something of a birthday party as well, because of course you took the Aston Martin Heritage Trust's very own A3, celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. This, of course, being the third Aston Martin ever made. And it's a story that's very much linked to the Trust as well, isn't it? A3 is certainly the jewel in the Aston Martin uh, Heritage Trust crown, along with the 1934 Ulster. And we felt that the lady needed to be taken out. Uh, it was her 100th birthday. We're very proud of the car. People do enjoy seeing her. So we was delighted that we were able to let people see her, enjoy the car, see, how, see its history. Well, let's go and have a tour of that Aston Martin Heritage Festival then, Gary. You took us around the show. And it was a show that was supported by enthusiasts, Aston Martin fans, and even the trade as well. They were uh, in big numbers. So we'll meet them all now as we tour the Aston Martin Heritage Festival. The Aston Martin Heritage Trust preserves and presents the heritage of one of the UK's most iconic car brands. Discover more via amht.org.uk. Right, I'm just wandering through the various fields here and I'm in the second century and the Gaydon field and there is a absolutely spectacular lineup of cars as far as you can see. And I'm standing next to a most beautiful V12 DB9 Volante and it's of interest to me because I'm with its owner, Dave Hall. Hello. How long have you owned this lovely car? This one we've had uh, just over two years now. And have you had any uh, previous Aston Martins? We had the uh, normal DB9 because this one being the GT, we had that for a year before that. So three years ago was our first sort of uh, venture into the Aston market as such. So yeah, but uh, well, well pleased and well over the moon with it. Yeah. yeah. What's drawn you to to Aston Martins, particularly the DB9? Well, Astons, I think, like a lot of boys from like a, a boyhood dream of, of ever getting the obviously from James Bond things and what have you as everybody's come um, the nine I don't know I was looking around um, and I just the shape of it and the, the, the way it was it just seemed to sort of you know tick the boxes that I liked and it seemed to be you know a really nice looking car so to me this this is how Aston should look sporty whereas the DBX doesn't but it's although it's a fantastic car it's uh, this 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 shape is um, I think you'll always think of as Aston as this shape wouldn't you you know so yeah well it's no plans for this one to go anywhere I appreciate you coming to the first Aston Martin Heritage Festival uh, what do you think of it oh it's been brilliant yeah no really good yeah it's uh, you know we've we've had a we've still got half of it to do yet we've been up the, the other half there but no a real good turnout of cars and people and no it's really good really good day i'm still in the second century in gaydon field and it's actually delightful we are seeing some very modern cars and i'm standing next to two absolutely gorgeous dbx's and 
One of the owners is, has only had their car one week, and I'm with two owners now. One is Graham, and one is Rod. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. Graham, can I talk to you first? You, you've had your car about one week? One week, yes. Last Saturday I purchased, picked it up, yes. It's first adventure is coming to the Aston Martin Heritage Festival. It's fantastic, fantastic to be here and out, fantastic. So what made you choose DBX over any other SUV? Um, my DB11 unfortunately picked up a glinch in, on the hottest day of the year and the uh, panel started to jiggle around and do funny stuff. So we took it back to the dealer and they loaned us a DBX and um, I had that for a couple of days and my wife fell in love with it because she couldn't drive the DB11 she was too scared to drive a DB11 so once we, she, we was in the DBX it was a, yeah, a no-brainer for the, for the family really That's intriguing because I, I remember Andy Palmer with his second century plan was saying that we need our cars to appeal more to, more to women and your, and your wife was saying I love this DBX she does. She's, she's confident in it now she wasn't at first because of the size, but we part exchanged the VW Touareg, which is a large car, and there's more going on in the Touareg. With this, it's more modern and because not all the gadgets, you know, right. it's simple, yeah. and she likes that. She loves that. Yeah, that, that is great news. Rod, hello. How long have you had your DBX? Uh, well, actually, just to point out, it's not my DBX, it's my partner's Thank you, Rod, DBX. that's the end of the interview. No. <laughs> but but, uh, but, uh, but I'm, fortu I'm fortunate because I do most of the driving in it because she just likes to be driven around in it. So that's... <laughs> so this car belongs to your wife? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but we got it in October. But she's, she's always been an SUV kind of lady. Uh, right. So we've had, um, you know, Porsche, Macan, Turbo, performance pack jobs and, and all that sort of stuff in the past. The KN Diesel S before that. So always loved that. And then uh, we were at Hampton Court for the... Um, uh, the concourse. Uh, the concourse last year yeah. yeah and we walked past the Aston stand she saw the DBX and just looked at it and said I need one of those I need one of those yeah. <laughs> I need one of those yeah. not want I need that's fantastic that's yeah. do you have any adventures uh, coming up Rod in the car uh, plenty yeah we're, we're pretty much booked most weekends up until the end of August mid-September time doing various things so Goodwood uh, on three different occasions. Graham any adventures you got planned? Uh, Bewley, uh, Simply Aston and Reims Champagne Tour September uh, that's not with Aston that's with uh, a classic car company right. but um, they've accepted the DBX which is quite nice he's in he's clean. you can get plenty of champagne in the back of the car <laughs> that's the hard part of the reason the boat size yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've got your priorities well sorted the DB11 is going to be hopeless for the champagne Absolutely. but the DBX is perfect perfect yes I thank you for coming to the festival the first event that the trusts have done what do you think of it I'm amazed how many cars are here. Uh, didn't expect it to be this big and glamorous, and I'm very appreciative. I'm sucking in every black sponge. Fantastic, absolutely. Well, that's great news. About, yeah. about you, Rod? No, it's brilliant. I think um, the contrast of being able to see, you know, some of the the very oldest Astons to exist. Uh, and, and contrast with some of the more modern stuff is brilliant and being able to I think the way it's laid out with the different generations is lovely to walk through and see how things have evolved and but but also what's been retained through through the lineage of various designs and things it's fantastic to see yeah right I've moved away from the uh, second century uh, field which is uh, very attractive but I've now moved into the the start of the pre-war era and I have just walked across to this most beautiful Aston Martin, and standing right next to me is is Mike Potts. Yeah, this is a 1933 Le Mans. I have to admit that it started life as red, um, and it spent 40 years in America. I've had it for 27. Did you bring it over from America? No, no, somebody else did, um, and uh, it changed hands quite quickly, and I managed to get it in the Depression. <laughs> 27 years ago, 1992. You must have had some great stories, some great adventures with the car. Yeah, um, it's been to it's been to Denmark, Sweden, Ireland, France many times. Oh, that is spectacular! It's so great to see these cars being used rather than just like a, a garage queen. Well, I'm very proud of it. I love it. <laughs> um, is there as one? All the owners do. I mean, you know, they are very special. The pre-war cars. I think the owners keep hold of the pre-war cars for quite a for for quite long periods. Yes, they do. They do. They do. They do. Yes. 
Well, what is interesting, I actually, I was at uh, Prescott a couple, a couple of years ago, I was approached and said, oh, did you know that this car was owned by so-and-so in, uh, in Shrewsbury? He was a garage owner. He said, I've got a letter that the owner wrote way back. He said, this, this car is the finest car he ever owned. I said, you're joking. He said, no, I'm not. I'll send you a copy. He sent me a copy of the letter. And there it was in black. And, well, it was copied. And uh, his daughter... Our garage owner's daughter lives in Anglesey, which is not very far right. from me. And, I, and we are in touch. And I've got photographs of her father with the car, her mother, and in the garage and everything, which goes back to early days. One of the memories, that when it was in America, the owner took off the identification plate. Right. So when I got it, it didn't have one. So I knew what the numbers were, so I got a, an imitation one made, proper, it looked like an original. And then suddenly the club contacted me and said, we've had a letter from America and your plate has arrived. The owners have decided that they're going to return it to the owner. And that's after a period of 30 odd years. <laughs> That just shows you a great community within the Aston Martin Owners Club and the Aston Martin owners in general. I mean, that, that, you, you wouldn't imagine that ever happening. So you've, you've got this plate and it belongs back to the car. It's on the car now. Yes, it is. One of the, uh, one of the highlights of the Aston Martin Heritage Festival is that we have an impressive uh, range of, of dealers here. And I've just come across Runnymede Motor Company, which is a very well-established business. And I'm standing next to, to Martin Brewer. Hello, Martin. Uh, hi Gary, you well? I'm very well and very delighted that you're here. I say you're long, long established, how, how long has the business been running? Uh, 1978 I started Runnymede Motor Company and we've, we've been dealing in Aston's ever since. Can you remember any of the early examples on, and dare I ask how much some of the early examples went for way back in 1970s? Okay, so my first Aston was a DB Mark III convertible, which these days is a very desirable car. And I bought it from a man on a council estate in Hemel Hempstead, and I gave him the princely sum of, of uh, £395 for it. And uh, when I sold it for 550 I thought I'd swum the channel. And, <laughs> and I then bought a DB6 for £600, um, and shortly after buying it, and it was my last £600 at the time, and shortly after buying it, we blew a hole in a piston. Um, and um, getting it repaired was a bit of a problem, but we did it, so... I think most of our podcast listeners, when we hear those prices, are going to be start weeping at the moment. What would a Mark III... Uh, we've got a Mark III here, actually, on, on your stand, which is actually beautiful. That's it's, a, it's, a, it's a light blue. Is, a, is there a name it's for the colour? It's elusive blue uh, with crimson interior. Uh, and I bought it from a man who'd owned it for 20 years, who, b- before I bought it, during his ownership, he spent £80,000 on it. On it. And since we got it, we've taken it back to bare metal and repainted it and retrimmed it. So, and mechanically, it's fabulous, and the rest of it's fabulous now. So, and it's 300 grand. So they've they've come on a bit. Uh, they have, haven't they? I seem to recall you do uh, most of your your restoration work on site. Is that correct? Uh, it certainly used to be. Uh, we do very little these days. Um, but uh, and my mechanic, who was with me for years and years and years, he's quite ill and he's not able to work. So we do far less restoration now than we used to. Every time I, I see you, I seem to see this DP replica. It yes. is a replica, isn't it? It's a recreate. It's a tool room copy. Um, so it, it's it's a perfect copy of Project Two One Four. And if you stand this next to Simon Draper's original car, very difficult to tell any differences. So the dashboard is all correct. Uh, the the Barani wheels are correct. Uh, the, the, it's got a 12 plug uh, head on it, which is correct for one of those long range fuel tank. And I've owned it now for 16 years and just had enormous fun with it. It's a bit pointless having it unless I'm going to race it and I'm not sure if I'm going to race anymore. So I might. I haven't renewed my licence this year, but I, but I'm, I might just do that. So uh, we'll see. What's in demand on Aston Martins at the moment? Oh, bread and butter stuff. DB, DB7s, DB9s uh, always sells. Um, uh, and then things like the Mark III and a DB24 and, and that sort of thing 
Um, is there's always a demand, and we're we're not soulless Aston. We do we do a few E-types and the odd the odd Bentley and this sort of thing as well. So um, yeah, keeps us going. Is there in a non-Aston field? Is there is there a flavour of the month? Uh, is Jaguar E-types uh, 60 years this year? Has there been a, a bit of a surge in interest there? Uh, yes, we uh, we stocked up on E-types uh, towards the end of last year and the beginning of this, and I suppose we've probably sold seven or eight uh, this year. So that that's you know it was a good thing to stock up. I'm walking through the field and I'm going to try and find a random person and this random person is one of the marshals and you are Liam O'Sullivan? That's correct, yes. We would just have to direct all the guys to the correct parking base and they're all good-mannered, lovely people to be around and they follow directions explicitly. Lots of smiles, lots of waves and lots of cheer, so it's been a great day to us. I will say the display of cars is quite impressive, so you, you marshals have done such a great job and get them in order, we've got them in timeline rather than just a random display. You've gone round the fields, has there been a particular, hmm, I like one of those? I must say, uh, I love the classics, the classic cars, the, the, the old ones, so beautiful. I should have brought my sponge bucket today and sort of just park, washed a few cars and valeted the car. I think we've got a business opportunity there. I think, yeah, I think we're, hopefully we'll do the festival again and we'll maybe see you going around with a bucket and in clean your car for a fiver, mister. <laughs> Come on, you asked him about tenner. Tenner, not a fiver, tenner. Tenner, right, yeah. here we go. So um, <laughs> pass the trust to get a commission. I am at the Aston Martin racing display. We have the Vantage GTE winner uh, here, which uh, number 97, which completed at the final round of the FIA World Endurance Championship in Bahrain. And next to it, we have a GT8R, All right. sorry which a gentleman inside is revving the engine, and I'm hoping... As on cue. It's a GT8R. It's based on the same chassis that has proved successful the GTE. GT3 and GT4 variants around the world. It sits with this GT8R sits between the GT3 and the GT4 and has been optimized for reduced weight, increased power and improved aerodynamics. It's got an aerodynamics package which includes a large rear wing, new dive planes and a quite impressive splitter while the power is 549 brake horsepower and the weight Wait to hear this is just a mere 1450 kilograms. A long established uh, Aston Martin uh, restoration, repair and car sales company, Trinity Engineering is here and I'm delighted that he's got some lovely cars here I must say. And I'm standing next to Tim Butcher, who is the owner. Hello, Tim. Hello there. How are you? I'm very well. It's, what a it's great day. It is. It's actually wonderful. It's such a great event to see so many cars here. And you've got some great cars. Can you just talk us through what you've got on site? Well, what we had on site today was a DB4 convertible that was a full restoration that we did for an owner. And we were delighted to be able to hand it back to him today. Pick up his fully restored DB4 convertible that, you know, and what better day to give it on. But what a spectacular event. Um, the sun's out, it's the right day for a convertible and uh, yeah, we were delighted to hand the keys back to him. Well that's a very special moment Tim and I'm, I'm next to a rather lovely DBS Vantage. Is Correct, it DBS? yes, an, an original Silver Birch um, manual Vantage car that again we inherited in cardboard boxes and uh, it was fully restored over two and a half years back to its former glory so it's, it's exactly the specification that it was when it was first born in 1968 and uh, very kindly the owner loaned it to us today so that we could display our workmanship to, to the Aston public. The DBS Vantage, uh, it was always deemed to be in a bit of a poor relation in, in the classic car field. It really has found its own now, hasn't it? I, I think it's developed its own kudos. Uh, yes, yeah, so th there's no doubt that it always used to be known as the ugly duckling of the Aston world. Um, but, but it's become quite cool. And you know, we're, this is the third one we've restored. Uh, so owners are, are realising that, you know, that iconic DB, DB456 straight six engine um, with a revised suspension, but the different bodywork, it, it's a very classic Aston and, it, and it's getting a huge following now. 
Why Aston Martin, Tim? Aston Martin, because uh, many, many years ago, you know, nearly 40 years ago now, when I was when I was a schoolboy, uh, I know, I know, I don't look it, but it was. It must be the moisturiser you're using. <laughs> um, I used to work in a sweet shop, um, delivering papers, and one of the one of the customers I delivered papers to was an Aston owner. Um, he allowed me to to work for him during you know, school holidays, evenings, weekends, just doing small top, small items, um, changing brake pads, changing oils, get some mechanical experience. So I got hooked on the Aston bug then, uh, and then he introduced me to the company that uh, restored and maintained his cars for him, uh, and I was offered an apprenticeship there. So no James Bond influence there? <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure I knew about the James Bond influence there, um, but, you know, certainly... I think you, you become attached to the first cars you work on. Uh, and I was very fortunate that the first first mechanical cars I got got experience with was an Aston Martin. And then when you start reading the books about them, you realise how their history has evolved and how it's how it's dictated their path through through you know, through through history and, and it becomes even more attractive. How long has Trinity been going? We're in our twenty second year. What's changed, in your opinion, to the, the, the ownership, the res- restoration, the repair of the cars like now to when you started? I, m- I imagine the value of the cars has, has influenced that as well. The, the values of the cars has influenced a little bit, but I, I would say some of the biggest changes is the quality of the work that we can now produce. Um, and that, that sounds a bit of an odd thing to say, but we've got now... Uh, exposure to better chrome plating, better powder coating, better machining, better fabrication um, equipment that 20, 30 years ago restorers didn't have the access to. So the, the overall quality of the product has we've been able to make it better but on the flip side of that that's what the owners are expecting. So you know with the values of the cars going up and the quality of the build that you can produce and, and it is true that every car that you do gets that incrementally little bit better. So that's now what owners are expecting. They're expecting the very top restorations when you do them. 3D printing, is, is that something going to be a bit of a game changer, you think? Really not, no. I mean, there's a lot of reverse engineering going on. So, you know, we, we do a lot of um, fabrication. We do a lot of machining of obsolete parts that, sadly, Aston Martin no longer supply. Um, whether there's because there's no demand um, or, the, or the volume isn't sufficient. But, you know, we find ourselves making and manufacturing small batches of things, mainly for the cars that we're servicing and restoring. Um, and we will take an original, remeasure it and make a batch of new ones exactly the same, right. but maybe out of right. a stronger material yeah. um, with, a, with a revised plating on them. Um, just, you know, to enable us to keep the cars consistently on the road and years to come. We've got this v8 vantage here i sat in it next to you going to le mans a few years ago our annual uh, pilgrimage and it was such a delightful car but the color i'm going to say green it's an original factory color called orchard green now when this car was new and uh, sadly i didn't order it new but it is it is over 40 years old the car cost twenty thousand pounds for an extra one thousand pounds you could have this special color which we're all familiar with the term metallic colour, metal flake, but this has gold particles in it. So the extra £1,000 was for the gold that's in the lacquer. Um, and that gives it a very unusual flip tone. So when the sun comes out, it starts to turn yellow. So it turns from green to leafy, leafy yellow in the sunlight. Um, it was my favourite colour when I was an apprentice. And obviously the V8 was the current car in production when I started my apprenticeship. So to have one that was a car I worked on virtually from new and in the colour that I've always favoured was was a rare find and when I found it I bought it straight away. If I was to write a cheque out for you uh, Tim, uh, how much would you want? I'd want in excess of 200,000 for it. We'll have a conversation another time on that. You're a great Aston Martin enthusiast, you work on Aston Martins, but uh, you've got your own personal set of wheels and I think I saw you drive in. I'm very fortunate to own one of the very small number of AMR Vantage Roadsters. Uh, I've only recently acquired it uh, and I thought if if I was going to have one car that would maintain its value, potentially go up a little bit in value, but would be a great fun car to drive, um, that would be the one to keep for life. So I, I bought it just before Christmas and uh, thoroughly delighted with it. Um, it's nice to have the two, the old Vantage and the modern Vantage. They are worlds apart in their driving driving capabilities and styles, um, but it's nice to have the, the comparison between old and new. Uh, and obviously as, as, a, as a company, we, uh, we, we service a lot of the modern cars that have fallen out of warranty 
and um, you know, and, and are in ownership and long-term ownership of people that want to own an, a Gaiden car. What's your current mix you tend to be dealing with at the moment? It's a real. It is a real mix. I mean, obviously, the demographics of, of the manufacturer have changed because now there's been more Gaiden VH platform cars built than than any other model. Um, some, you know, I'm getting, believing close on forty thousand cars. Well, when you think that even up as far as the, the late 1990s with the DB7, uh, Aston Martin had only made 30,000 cars, so we've got more VH platform cars than the rest of them put together. Um, but as a, as a company, we look after cars that are from 1950 to present day. Um, still, there's still a, a, a probably a 50-50 mix. of There's a, a lot of heritage cars, um, or her, what Aston Martin class as heritage status cars, still in, in regular use. Uh, but we are noticing that the, the Gaiden, the, the DB9, the VH platform, the V8 Vantage, um, they're becoming the, the, the car that you know, gets people into Aston Martins. So we're noticing, you know, they did it a little bit with the DB7s, but now the DB9 and the Vantage, you know, your sort of 2006 to 2010 cars, they're the, they're the cars that if people want to get into an Aston Martin, that's what they're searching for. And I think the important thing is, you know, to support the manufacturer, you need to use genuine parts. Um, you know, they're, they're all available from the factory. Um, and that maintain the car properly, use the correct parts, uh, and you'll always have a reliable car. So I, I think fundamentally, yes, keep it, keep it the way it should be and maintain it properly. I understand you moved into new premises, so the business is in rude health and by the sounds of it, it's just going to go from strength to strength. Tim, I appreciate your time and thanks for supporting Heritage Festival. We've had such a fantastic time. The response from the ownership around here, just on looking at what we do and, and the quality of what's in the car parks, it, it's just been a fabulous day. I can't, can't thank you enough. It's been a really, really great thing to attend. It's a delight as I'm walking around the, the final hours of the Aston Martin Heritage Festival and I've come across a good friend and should I say a colleague of mine from many years ago, John Godley, who used to be, well, at the Aston Martin Owners Club. What did you used to do there, John? I think my title was the Assistant Secretary, but I used to look after the advertising, used to help Richard Culverhouse with the racing. I looked after the archive for Alan Archer and um, I helped Claire with the Publications Committee. I think John's been a bit modest there, and John is an absolute guru. I remember when I was helping out many years ago and trying to do a magazine, of it's the AM Review, I mean, about 20 years ago, and I needed some photographs, and I went to you, John, and I says, uh, could you find me a, a photograph of a 1952 Aston Martin doing this? And you just ran to the filing cabinets and shuffled it, and you just found everything in seconds. You must have an amazing memory for this stuff. Uh, my short-term memory is pretty appalling, but I do seem to remember things, perhaps not so many people, but I remember cars from 20 or 30 years ago. And as I said, I had great mentors and, and uh, uh, people who educated me in that such a, uh, a discipline, such as Neil Murray and, and, the, and the long departed uh, Alan Archer, who told me the disciplines of archive keeping and making sure your records were kept up to date. And of course, with Jim Wyman's help, always behind uh, uh, any questions I had, um, finding the photographs you needed was was relatively straightforward and of course Roger Stowers at the works you just had to pick up the phone to Roger and he would he would tell you about the cars that he regarded as children while you're here you're a great Aston Martin enthusiast have you seen two or three uh, cars you that, that you particularly like or you got some stories about well there are some cars that have come effectively out of barns or out of the woodwork certainly are cars I haven't seen for a long time and um, it's very unusual to see two DB4 convertibles within 20 20 yards of each other which is a fantastic sight and then if you look to, to the left you see then the former Princess Margaret uh, DB5 convertible that Bonhams are offering that's a delight to see again um, had a great history um, I've seen a DB4 sorry a DB2 4 Mark II that was on the Amelia Amelia retrospective last year but also actually took part in the 1956 Coup des Alpes and a very proud owner who restored it um, was telling me the great stories of tracking down one of the original owners and it's that sort of history of the heritage of the cars and the people that rallied and raced them back in the heyday of the David Brown years that is what you and I Gary re really enjoy from the history of Aston's. The Aston Martin Heritage Trust preserves and presents the heritage of one of the UK's most iconic car brands. Discover more via amht.org.uk.
Well, Gary, you really captured the atmosphere of that fantastic event that happened earlier this summer. Is there plans for another one in the future? No immediate plans, but uh, I'll be surprised if something's not going to happen soon. I say soon because it was such a great success and we have a lot of people saying, are you going to do this again? Whether it become an annual event, I'm not sure, but it's been such a great success. I'm pretty damn sure we'll do it again. I hope so, because I'm sure there's lots of people listening to that fantastic tour that you gave us, feeling that they missed out if they didn't go. So uh, that was it then, the Aston Martin Heritage Festival earlier this summer, 2021. And now our sort of passing shot for this episode, as we look at Aston Martin in the news, and it's split between good news and bad news. The bad news being that Vantage magazine has posted out its final issue, Gary. Yes, it has. Uh, was very sad. It was. A, it's a great magazine. It's a newsstand magazine. It's out quarterly and it covers all matters of Aston Martin f- f- throughout its history. Well-established editors. We've got Richard Meaden and, and Peter Tomlin and, and all the contributors and photographers. It's such a great magazine. And the last one went out. Uh, the autumn issue, 2021, the last one despite having a good, loyal subscriber base, uh, I, I subscribed from day one, uh, it seems that uh, COVID took another victim. It does surprise, and it surprised me, uh, Wayne, that the magazine and others you tend to read of do rely on travel destinations such as airports and train stations and so on. And that had a massive hit. And despite COVID relaxations, if you like, you know, travel is still... It's still restricted, if you like, and they saw that the business business case, the numbers didn't add up. So the the autumn issue was the last one. Very sad. Yeah, and you've got to feel for the contributors who put such good articles together. The legendary Doug Nye wrote a lot for them. Mark Hales, of course, Peter Tomlin that you mentioned there. And, of course, its editor, Richard Meaden. And there is an argument that future generations are coming into the car world and getting their media online and there's this increasing shift to online consumption the problem is you can't get that kind of stuff that that quality that vantage magazine put across you can't get that online anywhere and for me at least it would be very much missed uh you, you're dead right rain i don't you know more and more media is consumed through the smartphone and on the computer uh there, I feel there is always a market for a, a tangible, touchy-feely magazine, that the sense of theatre when it lands on the doormat and you rip open and you get the smell. I think as human beings, we are, we are very tactile. We, we like the touch of things. And I think a magazine is, is something that you may want to keep. And, and it is still a, a process that's working. We, we're looking at the Road Rat magazine, which I'm sure you're aware of, Wayne. And uh, there's other magazines called Magneto. And I think if you get the numbers together, these things uh, do work. But uh, sadly, in the case of Vantage, uh, they've pulled up shutters. Having said that, uh, in the editorial, it does says they hope Vantage will continue in some form. I'm not sure what form that be. It may be a, an extension to uh, the sister magazine Octane. I don't know. Or whether it appears as a bookazine, uh, which seems to be a thing these days. But... We'll wait and see, but I think it's a quarterly magazine. It's uh, bye-bye. Well, let's hope we do see those writers producing lovely content like that Absolutely. again. And uh, the production values on Vantage magazine were amazing. They fitted with the brand Aston Martin. And as you say, there was a theatre to open in the pages and seeing those cars presented in a way that really touched the senses. For me, the online world just doesn't do that. Perhaps video just about does the same thing but there's something about really really well done stories and still photography so uh, let's hope they come back in some form or another in the future but then the good news of course there is a new 007 film out no time to die 007 is back and it's the film we've been waiting for for probably over two years now it was delayed because of covid it's finally out and aston martin have really capitalized on their involvement with that film because for the first time ever there's not one but four Aston Martins in this film 
and they are models that represent the past, present, and future. There's a DB5, of course. You've got to have a DB5 in an Aston Martin. Absolutely. It's, it's the law. Done. It's the, it's the <laughs> law, yes. Uh, of course, they've got the Timothy Dalton-style uh, V8 as well, uh, a Super GT DBS, and the future represented by their new mid-engine hypercar, the Valhalla. And it's really good, isn't it, to see Aston Martin perhaps having yet another generation of people brought into the mark through James Bond. Oh, absolutely. And if I can just dive in on those cars, uh, I think if you know Aston Martin, you may know the historian at Aston Martin Lagonda, Steve Waddingham. Now, if you want to wind him up, you refer to the Timothy Dalton V8 as a vantage. <laughs> he yes. will go mad. And every social media post and he sees this he will have hashtag not a vantage so <laughs> ladies and gentlemen when you refer to the timothy dalton v8 please it's not a vantage and i do recommend you, you don't say it to his face because it could be unfortunate well i'm very pleased i didn't fall down that rather i was waiting i was waiting for that way and i was waiting for it <laughs> you'll have to try harder than that to catch me out but uh, <laughs> and speaking of that car actually though it's kind of having its day in the sun at the moment and you alluded to that in your interview uh, at the festival earlier on on the podcast it was a car that was kind of like the ugly duckling for a while there in the 90s but actually it's got a real fan base now hasn't it oh it has the the the, the v8 uh was a development from the dbs and i think it was always that era of car was always uh in the background it had a loyal fan base but it was the you know the db5 who was staying with the james bond cars that uh that lifted the uh, the prices and then conversely the DB, uh, DB6 and so on. But I think with the V8, with the Timothy Dalton, and again, it's it was one of those Cinderella cars, it was forgotten. And now it's been brought out again with, with Daniel Craig. And I think it's just raised the ante again. I think, hang on, Wayne, that is a Bond car. We've forgotten about that. And so thanks for bringing that back. And of course, Aston Martin haven't been shy. They've brought out a 007-themed current v8 vantage i am allowed to use that word and uh, i think it's great to see that car back again i think it's one of the ones that were forgotten and it does uh, appear prominently in the 007 film no spoilers i've always loved it there was a guy who parked next to me once at le mans in the campsite that had one and from that moment on i was always in love with that car just because it's it's a vast car they are big and for me, I quite like the fact that it was a little bit crude, actually. It had that kind of big, lazy <laughs> V8 in it. Many years ago, I interviewed uh, Ian Callum for uh, the Aston Martin Owners Club magazine. And he was on about talking about the DB7. And I said to him, where did you start on the DB7? And he said he went back to how he thought the DB6 would have developed. Because he bypassed the, the V8 era because he felt, and it's just his opinion... Uh, they felt they were too American muscle car orientated, too Mustang. And I think you can get that because if you look at the V8s, they had the, the Coke bottle design. They had the, the stubby rear end and a long, long bonnet. And again, that may have been a, a, a trend, a, a passing fad where it wasn't quite in vogue. But now I think, it, I think they just look great. I think they are. And priced accordingly, where if you go to your local friendly dealer. It's a car I love. It's a car great to see in a James Bond film once again. And Aston Martin have really gone to town on the PR opportunities of this film because alongside the film itself, they've also worked with Corgi to re-release the James Bond toy car, except this one is in one-to-one -one scale. And they did this fantastic uh, press day where they had the photographers all there lining up, taking pictures of this toy car in a genuine one-to-one -one sized uh, box as well so uh, a massive corgi box and it was the toy that everyone has had at some point in their life so much so that according to aston martin and corgi over 20 million have been sold worldwide and i can tell you gary that when it was first launched it was just 50 pence of your pocket money to buy 10, ten shillings 50p <laughs> that's all it was yes good grief 
And of course, there was two versions. There was the the gold one, which is like the collector's one. Now, if you see that on eBay in its original box, that's worth a fortune. Uh, and then there was the slightly bigger, later Corgi one, and it's the bigger, later one that they've basically recreated. Now, why would Aston Martin do this? Well, of course, it's a great opportunity for them to remind us all and to market the fact that they are making the DB5 once again with their continuation models some 55 years after that car went out of production. Of a matter of interest, something I've read recently um, about the James Bond DB5 cars is that you find it very hard to uh, whatever book you you, uh, you read, and there's a new DB5 book out recently, very, you can't get the chassis numbers. Very, very difficult to get the chassis numbers. And if you go to Eon Productions, they they won't let you know. It's a very guarded secret, the chassis numbers for these cars, for, for a reason best known to them. <laughs> I know lots of these cars, they get crashed and bent and broken, don't they, in films? And I know there was certainly more than one DB5 that James Bond used because they need several in the film. Absolutely. And I think, uh, again, I've, I've read recently, I think the there is... Is it the original DB5 was stolen a few years ago, and apparently it's been been found, or it's suspected it's been found. So I'm not sure, but in a typical uh, Bond spy uh, story, I I think there's an element of intrigue there. So it'd be interesting to see if the original, the proper DB5, if is if there is such a thing from the Goldfinger days, it'd be interesting to see if it does uh, resurface. What we've also done is we've put the photograph of that one-to-one scale James Bond Corgi toy in its actual proper size box on the website so that you can actually go and see. It's with the podcast description part of the podcast page at astonmartinheritagepodcast.com. Go and have a look at it there. Uh, As I say, a great opportunity for them to promote the fact that they are still making the DB5 as part of their heritage continuation models. And Gary, you reminded me recently of an Athena poster that sums this up very accurately, I think. I can't remember when I bought it uh, many years ago. Athena... uh not around anymore, I believe. I don't may exist online. Athena, you could just buy some great posters. And there was a, a poster of a V8 uh, Volante of the Virage type of uh, uh, body style and a junior version. And it's a photograph of, of a, a father in, in the larger car and presumably his son, in a smaller car. And they both look at each other, and it's a rear-end view. And the title of the poster says, The difference between men and boys is the price of their toys. I thought that was brilliant. It's the law by which we live, I think. It is. It's a good motto. Uh, So uh, great news from Aston Martin ahead of uh, uh, the big success, no doubt, of the new 007 film that is out in cinemas as we record this podcast. Uh, Episode 2, then... A quick preview from you, Gary, because uh, we mentioned the Roger Stiles collection early on. That's going to be in our Aston Martin Heritage Trust section of the show. But also, we've been finding out about a different era of Aston Martin, the pre-war era, with a visit that you had to a Curie Batelli. That's all coming up, isn't it? Yes, Wayne. And if you know your pre-war Aston Martins, they are the default name that you go to for all things Aston Martin. They champion these pre-war cars. I went there to speak to Robert Blakemore, the MD of Akiri Bitelli, and also Steve Waddenham, the historian at Aston Martin Lagonda. And we chatted about the pre-war cars, the racing, and why people still love the pre-war cars. It's going to be a great podcast, and I hope you tune into that. That's coming in episode two. Don't forget, of course, we want to hear from you on this, the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Please do drop us a line, get in touch, tell us what you think of the show. Let us know if there's a particular part of Aston Martin history you'd like us to cover. And in particular, if you have amazing stories, if you know someone who has amazing stories of their involvement with Aston Martins over the years, please do put them in touch with us or share your stories. AstonMartinHeritagePodcast.com. Just click the contact button there, fill out the form or leave us a voicemail. Until episode two next, it's goodbye from me, Wayne Scott. And it's goodbye from me, Gary Taylor. See ya. The Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Subscribe and get new episodes delivered to your device automatically via AstonMartinHeritagePodcast.com. Podcast.com.